the first time I sat down for a meal opposite Mr. Patrick Combs, I was incredibly jet lagged. I was like half awake, like barely holding it together. And I thought, oh my goodness, I'm sitting down for this lunch in Italy with a group of friends and entrepreneurs. And I've really got to like handle myself, like not fall asleep. And I had no idea at that moment that I was sitting next to a master storyteller. But 20 minutes later, Patrick has the whole table, including my half-functioning jet-lagged mind, absolutely hanging on the edge of every word as he tells this story about encountering a scene in the Dominican Republic where there was a donkey that was trapped and there was an amputation of one of the donkey's legs. It was just this like, you know, crazy story that you're like, what is happening here? What is this man talking about and who is he? And now that I've had the opportunity to know Patrick for a bit and to watch him work as a coach, as a speaker, as a storyteller, I understand that he can keep any tired mind totally engaged because he is excellent at creating a story experience that engages someone's mind, someone's curiosity, and of course, someone's emotional investment. So if you're an entrepreneur, you may be wondering, like, why is Sherry talking about stories on Zen Founder? Like, what is the entrepreneurial point? Is it good for mental health? Is it good for business? And the answer to both of those questions is absolutely yes. Your ability to tell your story is essentially your ability to articulate your strategy, your purpose. Hey, it's your marketing as a business owner. But even on a deeper level, our ability to tell our stories as humans is what helps us form our identity, is what helps us know our why, is what keeps us close to our truth. And when we are in the course of healing, one of the things that is most powerful is to tell our story in the presence of another. It's essentially what psychotherapy is. So I'm super excited to share this conversation that I had with Patrick Holmes. He is as I mentioned, a storyteller, a speaker, someone who has hosted a one-person show. He's a media personality. If you're curious about all of the many incredible things that he does, you can find him on patrickholmes.com. He also runs a business with another friend named Eric called Bliss Champions, which helps people connect to, in my words, their vocational calling and to pursue that in a way that is heart-forward. So telling better stories makes you a better friend, a better entrepreneur, a better human. And Patrick is a master at helping people tell their stories well. Welcome to the Zen Founder Podcast. This is a place where we have conversations about mental health and entrepreneurship. We have a pretty broad conceptualization of what mental health means sometimes depression, anxiety, sometimes relationships or physical health. The goal here is to bring some calm into the crazy roller coaster of ups and downs that is life for many entrepreneurs. I'm your host, I'm Dr. Sherry Walling. I'm a clinical psychologist and an entrepreneur, married to an entrepreneur, live in the world of entrepreneurs, and I'm so pleased that you have joined us for this conversation. So I want to ask you a question, and I don't think I've ever asked this question to any guest ever in the history of whatever, 250 plus episodes of the podcast. So my question for you, Patrick Holmes, is 
who is going to play you in the movie of your life? I am. I'm playing me. You're playing you? Yeah, yeah. It's a documentary feature film. So that means that they'll interview me and I will, I'll answer the questions and you know, they'll be prompting what happened next, I suppose. Now, what's unknown on the creative treatment of a documentary feature film is what, the, what else they do because they have total creative freedom to create vignettes. To reenact scenes from... To reenact scenes to get better looking people with finer acting talents to reenact scenes that I, that I just speak of. So I have a role in there as myself, which I'm terrified of. Yeah. How are you going to, how are you going <laughs> to study gonna for, for that? How are you possibly going to get yourself in that mind space? I'm going to review notes that I take about myself continually. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, you are, you are the first guest that I've had on who will be the, the star of his own. What do you call it? A f- it's, a do- it's, a, it's a movie, but it's a documentary feature style. There's an example out there, and, and I don't remember the title, but many of us, I think, got exposed to it because it was recently on Netflix, and the producers are very, and, you know, they love it as a template. And it's the true story of someone who heard legend of buried cocaine down in Mexico somewhere. Lots of buried, millions of dollars of buried cocaine. So in real life, they went pursuing it, and they found it. And so if you watch that documentary, it's not like watching an old school doc where people are just stating the facts. So there's no Ken Burns. It's not like no, no. You feel like you're watching a camera. No, you you feel like you're watching a, a feature film that's just intriguing. But but it has this under this shocking undercurrent that keeps cutting back to the real people as they're telling it, as it happened. And of course, everybody's kind of a character, so. You know, they're already identifying the real people in my life who were around at the time. And I can't wait to hear their contributions. I think probably everyone who's listening is a little bit confused by this point, but we're telling this a little bit out of order. So what is this movie about? It's an incident that took place in my life in 1995, where I got a junk mail check in the mail. I'd thrown 50 of them away, but this one, for some reason on this particular day, I thought, oh, it'd be really funny to stick one of these stupid, ridiculous monopoly money-like checks into my bank as a joke and just wait for them to call and compliment me on my sense of humor. And so the bank cashed it. It was for about $100,000, just a few thousand dollars short of that. And so suddenly I had $100,000 in real life from... Uh, crazy town. And then the bank got very angry. And what really happened is the next six months of a standoff between my bank and I, and an ensuing, unpredictable, outrageous series of events. So that's the, they're making the movie about that time in my life and some ancillary events around that time in my life too, that they think play into the story really well. So you have done a lot with this story and I really recently was lucky enough to see you perform or tell the story as a one man show in Toronto. It was so masterful to watch you tell this story because, because I know that it's one that you obviously lived through, but one that you have been writing and practicing and telling for many years. But the experience that I had in the audience, even knowing the story a little bit, was that it was 
being told for the first time with sort of all of the the magic and emotion of like, oh my goodness, I can't believe this is happening and unfolding this way. So I think one of the things that I'm so struck with by the way that you have told the story um, and the way that, you know, you'll continue to tell it is how much really authentic emotion you bring to the story as you tell it, as it unfolds. Thank you for that. Very nice compliment, which I, I mean my thanks very sincerely because behind the scenes of this story is my greatest sort of art project in my life. I've written four books. One was the book about this incident, but I've written four books. I've given a lot of speeches and, and I've run a couple businesses, but behind the scenes in my life, the longest running creative art project that I've ever had is telling this story. Matter of fact, this story has been the greatest teacher of story lesson to me. It's been the greatest teacher. I've used it to learn a performance medium that was absolutely enchanting and admirable to me, the one-man theater show, comedic theater show. So when you give me a compliment about it, you know when someone compliments you on something that you've worked your ass off on, it means more. So I've worked my ass off on the story out of pure bliss and enjoyment. And I've worked my ass off on the performance for the same reasons. And so for me, the reward has always entirely been in the journey, in the doing. It's come with a lot of external rewards by the way of great shows and great venues and people saying, oh my God, I love your book. But truly, this has been a journey of self-fulfillment from, could I tell a story well? That's just been the only question that's driven me since it happened is, could I use this incident to tell a story really well? And if for the first year, the answer was no. <laughs> the answer was a resounding no. It didn't come out perfectly the first time. <laughs> Can you believe it? Or the second time or the 12th time or the 14th time? You've been, how long have you been telling this story? You know, I first started telling the story in written form as it was happening. 1995. Yeah. That's really significant because that was the longest piece I ever attempted to write. So you've been telling this story for 25 years. Is my math right there? Yeah, I do take days off from telling it. Are you sure? (laughs) (laughs) But okay, so you've had a relationship with this story for 25 years. I've had a relationship with with, yeah, trying to tell the story better for 25 years. But let me tell you, you go back to what you said specifically. When I'm doing a one-person show, one of the top key performance goals is to, is to give your audience the feeling that I'm telling it for the first time and it's happening together to us in real time. That shared experience. Yes, that we're having a shared experience. So, so I love that you say it. it felt like you were telling it for the first time because in performance, in this medium, you can fall off an edge. And if you fall off the edge to the left, it's your audience feels like you're telling it for the hundredth time. And that's a disaster. What's the other side of that? God, there's, you know, it sounds like there's two sides, but there's a hundred ways to fall off of the performance in a one person show. But the other one is, you know, there's trying too hard and there's not trying hard enough. The speed in a one-person show is really one of the thinnest lines there is. It's too fast or too slow, too hard or not hard enough. Underperforming or overperforming, such a thin line. But the other thing is all in the words. It's the words, the words, the words. Then I'd say the third edge that really intrigues me that I'm not done at all learning about, as a matter of fact, this year I will take lessons on it, is physical comedy, 
having nothing to do with the words. I want my, I want to learn what clowns know. Like your body's presence in the story. Yeah. My body being able to communicate emotions and that I can't as well using words. So I'm guessing that a lot of folks who are listening to this may never have the opportunity to do a one-person show or may never choose that as something that they want to pursue in their lives. But I think um, you have so much depth and wisdom in the way that you approach stories. So as you think about how to create that sense of emotional connection, the sense in which we're having this shared experience, something very special is happening right now while the story is being told. What's under the hood of that? Like... How do you make that happen? Because it, it's a skill, of course. It is. And so, and now I apply that skill to writing origin stories for entrepreneurs and for leaders and for thought leaders. So they come to me and they tell me their story and it may take them 18 minutes to tell me their story. It may take them an, a one hour phone call to tell them their story. One super well-known podcaster took two hours to tell me his story, but my job as the story crafter is to say, good, let me get back to you and let's have a three-minute, super ultra-compelling version of your story. That's <laughs> a lot of editing. <laughs> so I laugh because it's hard as hell sometimes, but it's always possible. And here's a couple of the keys. Number one is present tense. It's probably lost on my audience in the theater show, but 90% of the time I'm speaking in present tense as if it's happening right now. I don't say in the show, hey, and then on June 3rd, I got a letter. I say, it's June 3rd. I go to my mailbox and inside there's a letter. Now there's a, there's a technique under there that is so amazing to, I'm a geek about this. I can hear myself. I'm just, you know, this is where people tune out and they just go, Jesus, I just don't care at this level, but I do. And it's called naive narrator. If you want to be a better storyteller, be naive with your audience. In amateur storytellers, they know what happens next. They're way ahead of you and it can make them smug. So you can even see amateur storytellers start to smile before the happy ending because they know it's coming. A naive narrator has no clue what's going to happen next, just like the audience. So they're having the same emotional experience as the audience. Yeah. So you don't have to tell people you're surprised. They can see you're surprised. You don't have to pretend you're surprised. They can feel surprised with you. So you know, that's one of the primary techniques that goes on is help is be where your audience is at. And present tense helps you do that if you dare to tell stories in present tense. But the, the, other, the other thing that a lot of people just don't seem to know when they tell their stories about their companies, even, because every leader should know their story. In my book, it's more important than your bio. When someone says, what do you do or why do you do it? Or someone's opening a keynote speech or they're getting ready for their TED talk or they're going to talk to their team or to their new employees, they should know their story. The gap seems to be that most people haven't slowed down and says, what is my story? The one that matters in this situation. And what's the point of my story? What's the real point of my story? And that's a discipline because most people, their first answer will be, well, there's so many points to it. Oh, stop it. <laughs> Please. We know that. The other answer, you know, that, that, you know, is unnerving to me is when people go, well, I mean, it was a lot of things, actually. And you, you know, that sentence is like, well, how did you get started your company? Well, it was a lot of things, actually. I mean, it took place. And right then, you know, like, oh, no, a long muddled story is coming. 
(laughs) (laughs) You feel dizzy, don't you? Yeah. So Edward de Bono, the thinking expert once said, if you want to be smarter, slow your thinking down. Well, if you want to be a better storyteller, slow down and give due to your story. It deserves attention. Slow down, think it through, think about the ending, think about where you should begin. You know, think about what needs to be said in order to reveal your why, why you do what you do. Think about where your story is going to show that you're a human being and you're vulnerable. I'm really struck by this, by your statement that, that leaders should know their story or have a good command of how they tell their story, both the story of who they are and how they came to be where they are, but also the story of the business. I mean, why is that so important? besides not boring your team or boring your audience with a a poorly structured story? What's the heart of why that matters from your perspective? Because a leader needs trust and influence. And you don't gain influence. You gain very little trust and influence through your bio. Your bio is... But the problem is people lead with their bio. They think, as long as you know that I've accomplished a lot of impressive things, you'll follow me anywhere. And it's not true at all. What's the difference between a bio and a story? A bio is meant to celebrate and list your accomplishments. It's supposed to say, this is what I've done. So my bio says things like PhD in psychology. I went to Yale School of Medicine. I did this postdoc. I did that. Yep. So it's a list. It's a list. And it builds builds credibility. An origin story is a well-chosen narrative that creates trust and reveals your why. And we all know Simon Sinek's Start with why. So we know the value of sharing your why. But in in influence, trust comes before credibility. If you want to influence someone, they need to trust you before they they even care if you're credible. So in in my estimation, if a leader is seeking influence and trust to serve their mission in a greater way into the world, then you lead with story. You lead with the right story so that people trust you. And then they want to know, well, where have you been? What have you done? That's second to trust. The credibility gets locked down with a glance at the bio. Now, where I began to know this in a very real way is as a keynote speaker for 25 years, you know, on thousands of stages, you're constantly getting introduced. Well, if you let someone introduce you by your bio, you go out on stage and you have a difficult time with your audience for the first 10 minutes. You're overcoming a preponderance of credibility. It's off-putting. It's dehumanizing. Your audience doesn't fall in love with you and go, oh, you wrote four books. I love you. No, they don't. They go, you, you wrote four books. I don't, I don't know that we can even relate. But if you hand, so I learned in real time, like hand someone an introduction or, or we've all experienced it. Let a friend introduce you. And if they just tell a little anecdote about you, they don't even mention your credentials. And you walk out on stage you're, you're, the connection is already there before you begin. It creates connection, trust, a shared emotional experience. Mm-hmm. And if you ask it, and now let's tie it back to the one person show. If you ask the number one thing that someone's going to have to be good at if they dive into the one person show, it's creating connection with your audience. You have to. If you're going to, you know, in, in my thing, if, if we're going to be together for two hours and it's just going to be me talking, we damn well better be connected. <laughs> no. You better feel That's a connected. lot to sit through. <laughs> then you better feel something, go somewhere together. How does it feel to have this 
movie deal emerging? Exciting. It feels like a friend called and said, hey, we're going to go raft the Grand Canyon. And my response is, you know, I've always thought it would be really fun to raft the Grand Canyon. Let's do it. It feels like that to me. So I think, oh, I'm rafting the Grand Canyon this year. Should be amazing. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I've seen a a bit of what you've written about this experience as as it's unfolded on social media. And one of the things that I've loved is the way that you've put it in perspective, that this isn't something that happened overnight, that it's taken years and thousands and thousands of words and edits and practice with this story for it to catch the kind of momentum where people say the world needs to hear this story. And I imagine that must be very gratifying. Yeah, I think it's the deepest gratification. Thank you for saying that. You know, the behind the scenes is what every entrepreneur knows. Every entrepreneur knows behind the scenes, there's no such thing as an overnight success. My story is being made into a Hollywood film 25 years, almost to the month later, 25 years later. But in between there, I wrote a book that took me 12 years to finish, 12 years to say, it's done. That's the way to tell the story, 12 years. And in between there, I did a play 500 times around the world for 15 years. And I never once stepped off that stage and said, oh, the show's great. I don't need to change a thing. Constant revision on that writing. And then I was thinking about, when when I was thinking about talking to you about this, I was thinking about the two key moments that mean even more to me now. One, which is I I was a year into doing the one-person show and failing every single time. And so that meant 12 public, painful, hard fails. And then I quit. And through a little help from the universe and one last gasp of courage, like when I say help from the universe, literally a phone call out of the freaking blue In my world, the universe definitely has a guiding hand that can come to your rescue. And so the guiding hand came to my rescue and got me back in the game. So I didn't quit the theater show. And now I'm very clear, well, if I quit the theater show, I wouldn't have gone around the globe 500 for 500 performances. There was an occasion when on the book where I, I quit for a year, because I wrote, I, had, I was on my second entire rewrite of the book, which meant hundreds of thousands of words in multiple years. And I chanced upon, not entirely, but you know, I went to the Maui Writers Retreat and I chanced upon, I think one of the single greatest editors in American publishing history, the same guy that discovered Sidney Sheldon and owned his own publishing house. And he got wind that I had a very exciting book and people thought well of me and he took my manuscript and he said, I think you're the new voice in American writing. Can I read your manuscript? And this was like an unreal moment in my life where Hillel Black was going to be my editor and publish my book. And he went upstairs and he read it and he came downstairs and he, and he looked at me and he said, there's no voice in your writing. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, you don't know what voice is? I said, no. He said, there's no, you don't put your thoughts in your writing or your feelings. You just report the facts. Mm, there's nothing under the narrative. No, and you know, I made it two years without, or more than two years, however, I had made it years without knowing a damn thing about writing. And so, you know, that was an immense defeat along the way, being told by 
this hero of yours. Yeah, being told, yeah, actually you suck. It's the opposite of you being a new voice. You have no voice. And so another thing where I put it in a drawer for a year and I just felt like, I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can pick up this book and rewrite it again for the third time. What called you back to it? What calls any of us back to that thing that we just want to become and that we dream of doing? Obsession, compulsion, drunkenness. I don't know. I mean, really, what, what, like, why'd you open the drawer? <laughs> yeah. But why did I want to, why do I want to tell a story in the first place? Why did I want to have a book of stories? Why did I want to have a one person show? To me, these are the greatest mysteries. And I don't know why we have things inside of us that call us to do them, but you know, but my life's been a dedication to trying to answer the calls. Not, I don't know why I have them, but I want to answer them. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking about those two moments, Sherry, those two moments were once I gave up on the live show and then found a way back at it. And then I, multiple times I gave up on the book and found a way at it. And they, you know, and in the end, the reason why I have a movie deal is because there's a book that's pretty solid writing and has been read by a million people. And there's a play that's been seen by a hundred thousand ticket buyers. And so when a movie producer looked at it, there's a very well worked out story with a really solid base. With a voice. I, I'd have to ask hello. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Why do you think so many of us struggle to tell our stories or tell any story well? Because all of us have told a story sometime in our childhood or our teens and been ignored for it or been told that's a stupid story, or tried to tell a story that we fit in our minds and, oh, that's a good story. And while we were telling it, we knew we were telling it badly and we felt embarrassed. Like the story got away from us. Yeah, like the joke get away from you. Like, like the story got away, the joke got away from you. It was so good in your mind. And then it, and you know, it's, it's one form of kind of a public embarrassment that at least on my path hurt it cut pretty deep because what I mean, right. It's like a public act of saying, Hey, look at me, look at me. I have something entertaining to share. And then for that to fall flat, for, for that to fall flat. I mean, is there, is there, you know, it, I mean, it still pains me to this day to watch someone start to tell a story and then watch them have to suffer. People start actually wander away, you know, or take a phone call. So it's a daring act to tell a story. I'm thinking of, it's a little bit tangential, but so much of our emotional experience is built in these very early moments of our lives where we're having a sense of mirrored or shared emotion with our primary caregiver. There are studies where they look at the ways that in the case of these studies, a mother's emotional experience will mirror that of her infants. And when there's a symbiotic shared emotional experience, you see a like a soothed, happy, content child. And when there's an infant that's reaching out and attempting to elicit a response from a mother and the mother goes blank face, they, they sort of gear to the experiment. So the mother would not respond, would just look flatly and blankly at the infant. And you see the infant like get super disoriented and dysregulated and start to sob and even sometimes like hit or strike out at the mother who's not responsive. And it's really a pretty deep emotional attachment rupture. And it, I think it's, it's not unlike what it feels like when you are attempting to tell a story that elicits connection and you do it badly or your listener listens badly and there's that 
difference. There's a distance between what you're hoping someone will feel with you and the blank stares that you receive instead. I love what you said. First of all, you know, when you, when the, you're talking about the baby being ignored, I have horrific flashbacks to a hundred performances. Right? So I, I know how real that is, but honestly, my enthusiasm is just skyrocketing at this point, you know, because I'm flashing on what everybody listening to podcast experience in real life really is. And to me, it's this, it's this daring opportunity between kind of what you described, like, feeling the, the, the love of connection versus feeling the genuine stress and illness of that didn't work. But what came flashing through my mind is how wildly, incredibly gratifying it is to tell a simple story. And, and so, so if you scale back down from my context, which is a one-person show, and you just go, hey, we all know Oprah Winfrey, somebody says, Oprah, what was your childhood like? We can kind of hear it in our mind. We can hear her casually saying, I grew up in Mississippi and at 14, I was raised by my grandma and at 14, this happened to me and I felt this way and, and I got pregnant and I didn't know what to do and I was lost, but then I found, we can hear the basis of a casually told yet wildly effective story that lets us say, I like you, I trust you. I relate to this, even though I haven't been through that. It reminds me of something I have been through. Tell me more. The, the casually told Steve, Steve Jobs saying, well, you know, uh, I, was, you know I, was, I was in a garage and I was with... The other Steve, <laughs> Steve Wozniak. Yeah, I was with Woz and, you know, we can hear the stories. And when we think about those stories, we don't think a giant, you know, hard to tell drama. We just think about a person at a, in your house sitting across from a coffee saying, this is how it happened to me, right? I always like Eckhart Tolle's story, you know, de deeply depressed, suicidal, chanting in my mind, I can't stand myself. I can't stand myself, right? Or Howard Schultz, Starbucks, you know, we lived in a brownstone in New York and my father, you know, who had a remedial blue collar job fell down and got hurt and there was no insurance whatsoever and it caved our family in. And I swore as a child watching a struggle to get groceries and food. If I ever happened an opportunity to take good care of employees, I would do it. And these are the stories that we're taught that is the connection point for this conversation in my mind. Everybody listening, you have this story. It's of tremendous value to the people around you. And storytelling is this really cool thing where if you, if you just slow down and give the story its due, and that means find the story that you should be telling. Give it a little love and attention and care, a little craft. All my students of story, their greatest surprise they always tell me is, I didn't know there were rules to story. Of course there are. Follow the rules and then you know, you're not after a masterpiece, you're not after a one-person show, unless you're insane. And then once that little crafting is done, there's the, the magical handoff, which is, now the next time you tell it, tell it like a human being, tell it casual, tell it organic, tell it natural, because you already gave it the craft, you already gave it the do. But those are, I just described three, three broad steps that most people skip. And the next time they're a coffee and somebody says, How, so how'd you get into do what you're doing? They don't have a freaking answer. 
or the next time they're trying to communicate to their team a new direction for their piece of software or a new marketing rollout. They want to explain why, but they lead with the bullet point list instead of the story of how this next step became the logical best one. What stories are you working on now? I'm writing a story this morning for a podcaster who has a big footprint in real estate. And it was really interesting in, in telling his, in looking at his story, I have these two wonderful choice points. One where he lost everything. He lost $50 million of real estate assets in the 2008 crash. Well, look at all the story possibilities, the story of ratcheting up 50 million. But he, you know, he hands me this one, a silver platter, like losing everything is a great story, right? But the other story he you know, that I get to choose from or weave together is the story of being in the pool in the second week of his $8 million custom-built mansion under the palm trees and the, and the colored digital lighting in the pool with a second-story waterfall that cascades at his feet, you know, <laughs> and it's surrounded by $200,000 curved glass aquariums made by Epcot and saying, I'm f***ing miserable, right? But that being the start of the story, and then, so what happened next? You know, so now I, the storyteller in me knows that the better of the two stories is not the one where he lost everything. It's the one where he found his humanity. Why is that a better story? I, you know, to me, the best stories, the ones that will build trust and influence the most. And, I, you know, when I say that, I say it in the context of, Trust and influence for good people with good intentions, hopefully always, at least only in my work. But we'll build trust and influence and connection are stories where you're truly vulnerable to your flaws. And then you're authentic with the lessons learned from being that broken in that area, from being broken in that area or deeply vulnerable in that area. And those lessons will carry a pearl of what are they what's the phrase a pearl of great price because i love it when an origin story elevates itself out of a personal story and becomes really if you will universal carries a universal truth and so to me it's in our humanity and the transformations that came from them where the greatest universal truths are and so i love the thought of hey i told you a story about myself but really we all just got reminded about our noblest values, didn't we? In the way we should live as human beings on this planet. I'm kind of mesmerized right now. I can't even think of more questions. <laughs> I just think you're doing it right now. You're telling a story about a story in a way that loops in your listener. I'll tell you a story that, I, you know, that I'd like people to know about me in thinking about it. I grew up in a trailer house in Bend, Oregon, a rundown trailer house, meaning that our, I never forget that our front stairs were constructed. The bottom stairs of our, of our unpainted porch was a tire laid on its side right? into a dirt driveway because I was raised without a father. He, he left my mother when I was one and my brother was two. And, uh, my mother really struggled to make ends meet. She was a licensed practical nurse, which was the highest profession ever attained in our family genealogy. On my mother's side, my family immigrated from Mexico with 
a donkey, a mule, it's called a mule, a cart across the border at Laredo. That means a lot to me, you know, that just two generations ago, my family crossed the border at Laredo and my mother rose above all, all probability and became a licensed practical nurse, raising her two sons in a trailer house in Bend, Oregon. Not the Bend people know today when they're going, oh, Bend's wonderful. It's always been wonderful, but it didn't used to be rich with a highway through the middle. But Sherry, what happened to me when I was, what happened for me when I was a teen was my mother became incredibly suicidal after a career ending back injury and her life catching up to her, you know, her own backstory catching up to her in her older age. And so I was weathering a suicidal parent when I was a teenager. And while I was going through it, of course, it was really tough. And it also had it took quite a toll on my life in my 20s, too, where I began to go into therapy and figure out where my shadow behavior was coming from, what it was rooted in, what was really happening there. But today at 53, I look back on my life and I think, life's really strange, the setups it gives us, because the greatest gifts of my life are being an inspirational speaker, getting opportunities to get in front of audiences and talk about what I think matters in life and what helps each one of us live a better life. And whenever I think like that, I always think, I know where that was born from. I, I know that I lived in an environment for a long time with contrast with a, with a person probably because of just their background and their brain chemistry mixed together, had a very difficult time on a daily basis seeing what was so amazing about life. And I think that was the perfect gift for me to emerge from into my adulthood saying, I kind of want to be really attuned on a daily basis to what's magnificent about life. And I hope to remind other people how amazing life is to live. And the single greatest way I've ever discovered speaking, led, inspirational speaking led me to it, to perform that service in the world is story. There's no greater tool that I've encountered yet in the world that helps people see that has always been there since campfire days to instruct us about, to give us a societal tool to share meaning with one another, to say, hey, I'll tell you a story. And it, it says something about how we should all live than story. And so that's my, that's my tribe. That's my tribe and my story, you know, but my tribe is... Those of us who say, hey, stories are worth sharing. They really matter. There's so many things that you are doing and working on the world. And if people want to know more about your story or follow you, figure out how to get in a room with you, um, what are some of the ways that they can do that? PatrickCombs.com. One O. <laughs> PatrickCombs.com. <laughs> And uh, I, I love the work that my company, Bliss Champions, is doing. Blisschampions.com. And Facebook. Good old Facebook. Good old, good old Facebook. Not a bad I love way it. To get some I good use stories it. in your life. Yeah. Yeah. I, t I tell stories. I, I share my stories through Facebook all the time. All right. Well, we'll put all your links in the show notes so people can find them. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for the space and the podcast and the amazing chance to talk. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode of the podcast. In the meantime, feel free to check out zenfounder.com 
for lots of resources about the kinds of conversations that we have on the podcast. You can get information about working with me, about maybe joining a Zen tribe. It's sort of like a mental health boot camp for entrepreneurs. We also have lots of content on our blog, links to resources in our courses and books for sale. So check us out there and we hope to provide anything and everything that you might need to make the entrepreneurial life a little bit easier.